Today, we're talking about high-stakes conversations, the ones with the most risk if things break down, and the ones involving your most important relationships on and off the job. Who better to learn from than a former FBI hostage and crisis negotiator? Oh, and who before that was a minister? I'm Jim Carr. Let's talk to James Chip Massey on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and thanks for joining us on the Manager Message podcast. This is the second half of a conversation with Chip Massey. It was fascinating, the first part of this. Chip served as an FBI special agent and a hostage crisis negotiator for more than 20 years. He talked a lot about that experience. He talked in detail about the mental checklist that he would go through in those very highly charged crisis or hostage negotiations. He also talked about the team that would be deployed at the time. Might not think about, I necessarily didn't think about all the people that would be involved in those situations and what everyone is doing in real time. It included a coach. It included an intel person, an investigator, an on-the-scene team leader, an on-scene commander. And they all have their roles. Things are moving very quickly. They're looking for clues, helping establish a state of mind. As Chip put it, it seems counterintuitive, but his focus in those moments would be on helping the bad guy. If you did not catch the first half of our conversation with Chip Massey, it's the previous episode. I hope that you'll do that in this second part of the conversation, because Chip has now moved into the private sector. He is the CEO of Plowshare Communications, so he helps business leaders and teams take some of these skills and some of these great habits to work on their strategic negotiations, how to build trust in relationships, and how to accelerate sales processes, dealing with difficult customers or clients. So that's what we're going to move on to today. We'll begin with a point where I was asking Chip about some more real world, everyday types of applications and how to deal with times that may, uh, you may have a difficult client, a difficult customer who's feeling very highly charged. And how can you leverage, how can you actually turn those situations into being some of those where you can build a client for life? More on my conversation with Chip Massey. We see conflict happen around us every day. Well, just so happened, I was at my gym in the city, just finished working out, was getting dressed as were a hundred other people because it's, it's busy and it's crowded and uh, people are, you know, bustling about because they, they need to be at work at, you know, eight o'clock or whatever. So I noticed that there seemed to be these two guys were in a heated discussion at this point. And, you know, this happens for whatever reason. And So I'm still getting dressed and so forth. And I can just hear it starting to escalate. And now it's getting, it's getting worse. It's not like they're walking away or, you know, they're changing the the dialogue at all or the intensity. No, it's, it's heating up. 
So as soon management starts to roll into the locker room because somebody's complaining, they could hear that argument, I mean, from, from one end of the gym to the next. So it's very loud. And I'm, you know, getting ready. And I see management interacting and they're doing a pretty good job. But I'm thinking, all right, look, let me try, right? I'm a negotiator. This is kind of what I do. Let me give this a shot. So I go over and I pick out the smaller of, of the two guys, right? They're, they're, they're big guys, make, make no mistake. But I'm picking out this, the smaller one. And I, I start to engage him. And I say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And it takes a while to get his attention because he's still in it. Even though there's like three managers in between he and the other guy keeping them apart, it takes a while to get his attention. That's that tunnel vision that happens. That's the, that is the amygdala hijack going in full force. You know, get all this adrenaline because you're, you're, you're ready for a fight. Even if you may not want to fight, you're ready for it. So this guy was fully in that tunnel vision. His, his hearing was, you know, almost next to nothing. He certainly wasn't seeing much. And so I had to keep at it. I said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Finally, he gets my attention. He, you know, he's looking at me with that, in, that burning intensity. What? I'm like, Hey, can we, can I just talk to you over here for a second? Cause I, I think I've got, you know, something that might help here. That's not, you know, well, eventually, you know, I, I get him apart and now I've got him facing me. And I said, Hey, can we just step out into the hallway here? So we, we step out just out of view of the other guy, which is helpful because, you know, that is a, that's a pain point, right? That is an agitator. We want him removed from that situation as much as possible. And then I start to talk to him. I said, listen, I, obviously that guy did something to offend you. I don't know what it is. It's you know, certainly not my business. But I just wanted to, one, tell you that I'm sure whatever it was is, was unfair. The way that you might have been characterized or the way he might have disrespected you or whatever it was, I'm sure you have every right to be upset. And I'm sure nobody here would blame you. What I'm doing there is I'm setting the stage for him to be able to say, hey, this guy's trying to understand. This guy's trying to hear me. And I'm slow. I'm slow talking it. I really am. I'm not you know, real fast and I'm not using big words and I'm using complex. I'm saying that's that just sucks. And I'm and I'm sorry that this happened to you. And I'm allowing time because one of the key concepts in, in hostile negotiations or crisis communications is time is definitely on your side. So the longer you have with an individual, the longer, the better the chance that they are going to start to de-escalate naturally as part of that time lapse. So I finally, in working with him, I finally get him to agree to pick up his stuff, put on his pants, and just go. And, you know, and it worked. You know, all my, my training not only, you know, works for kidnappers, but also <laughs> works for uh, lunkheads at a gym. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself, Jim. And I, I go in there. And I see the managers are still engaged with the other guy, and he is still upset. And st it's like, it's like he is still at a ten, and I'm feeling a little bit deflated. Like, wait a minute, I just solved the situation here, and I and I start to approach this guy, and and I'm a little bit disappointed, you know, that he didn't obviously understand my brilliance. So I go over to him and I say, "Hey, buddy, you just need to calm down." Oh, in my head. My heart, my whole body started to crumble because I could hear my instructors from Quantico yelling in my ear, what did you just do? Because what I did, one of the cardinal rules that I broke of negotiation is that you never tell another person what to feel. You never, ever do that. 
it is, you know, it it's death to any uh, relationship or any relationship that you're trying to salvage. Never tell somebody what they're supposed to feel. I knew better. But, you know, I, I even as a as a trained negotiator, I messed up and I and I completely decimated that the relationship I was starting to build with that guy. You know what he said to me in that very instant after I said, you need to calm down? He said, he said, you need to calm down. And then he started talking about my ancestors. So I had to like back up a little bit. I, I showed him that my, I, you know, my hands that, you know, palm up at, and I, I'm apologizing. I'm apologizing like, you know, I, I'm getting paid to apologize. And I said, sir, I am so sorry. You're right. I had no right to say that. I don't know what I was thinking. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really sorry that, I, that those words came out of my mouth. You're obviously you know, very upset. You've, you've, you haven't been treated right. And something, something bad happened here today. And, and I missed an opportunity to help you. And, I, and I'm sorry for that. And I walked away. And in that, as, as being the, the somebody that, that was no longer seen as a threat to him, as somebody, another authority figure telling him what to do, by apologizing and get, creating distance, because I was the agitator at that point, right? I, I became the agitator. I became that, the person he was needing to attack as a threat. I walked away. And, and I thought to myself, I, I still want to fix this, right? Because I, I can't let this go. I, I, need to, I need to do something here that demonstrates that, that the skill set works all the way through. So the guy did start to calm down. But he was leaving and he wasn't talking to anybody. And I called him as he was going down the stairs. I you know, hurried up my process and, and matched his step. And, and as we were going down the stairs, I said, listen, I, I also want to just say personally, I said, I'm sorry, because you didn't need to hear somebody telling you what to do. You needed somebody to hear you. And, and I missed an opportunity to connect with you there. And I, and I, just, I just needed to say, I'm sorry. He said, you know, you could just see his body exhale, the, 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 the tenseness in his shoulders release. He kind of, ah, he goes, look, man, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I really do. And he goes to hug me. And I knew that I had, I had salvaged that, that, that what I had destroyed initially with him. So and that, and that, you know, that goes to prove the techniques work. Even if you mess up, <laughs> you can go back and you can salvage a, a situation. Absolutely. It's a remarkable story and, and vignette, a very easy one for us to imagine. And it's interesting, Chip, because in that, what was probably a, a five or 10 minute period, you had that contrast of where you went through tactics and strategies that any of us could follow in terms of using personal language, in terms of pacing, as you said, and not speaking quickly and trying to make your point. But, but just pacing it a little bit and establishing the emotion at the time that the other person has so that they feel understood, doing all that thing with just your, your body posture and, uh, and leading someone through that to deescalate. And then you had a little blip, which just goes to show even the most highly trained among us sometimes in the moment can skip past the checklist. <laughs> Chip, I have had times where the words have come. I could almost see the wrong words coming out of my mouth. And I, I'm, I'm grasping them, trying to shove them back into my mouth. And you, you just can't unring the bell. But as you said, you always have the opportunity to go in and, and 
help that other person feel understood, really diagnose what the issue was. And oftentimes the issue has really nothing to do with the behavior that you saw at the moment. It was something that might've instigated or been the tripwire. You may not be able to fix that, but you can certainly use conversational skill and use the right tactics to bring it down. When things have escalated a little too much, it's the power of, of messaging and, and conversation to do that. So that's a great story. I'd like to take this. So we've learned some things here about de-escalation. So in your prior work with the FBI, when you have something that's very high risk, very high stakes, and you don't have an existing relationship. And even the story that you told there from the gym, these were not two men that you knew. You were just kind of reacting in that, in that situation, going through the skills that you had. And we also heard a little bit about what if in a business situation where a colleague or a customer, someone where you do have an existing relationship of how you can take lemons and make some lemonade out of them when things seem to be a little bit heated. I thought we might go in a little different direction though. So there's the de-escalation strategies to avoid the bad stuff to how to build rapport in the service of good things. So I'm curious to go back even before your FBI experience and the things that you saw and learned while you were serving as a minister, because that to me seems like such a different environment. You know, I see the work of, of ministers and, and those of us, whether we're involved in a house of worship or not, you know that ministers preside over rituals. They're leading services. They are performing weddings, leading funerals or baptisms and serve that ceremonial leadership role. But ministers are also involved in some very deeply personal conversations. And we're talking about commitment, hope, loss, mourning, forgiveness, big, deep stuff. How did that experience affect your FBI work? And how does that affect the kind of advice that you can give to business leaders in the secular world to have some of those rapport building and trust building skills? That's a great question, Jim. And I, you know, one of the things I tell people when they ask about what caused the change going from ministry to law enforcement, and I tell people when I'm uh, that, you know, when I was in the FBI, that would work with me. They say, "What? Why did you switch out from being a minister to an FBI agent?" I said, "Well, I became an FBI agent to have a less stressful life." They said, "Say again?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, yeah. No, you have no idea what that life is. The ministry. Just real quickly, uh, you know, many of us, of course, no ministers. We, whatever our religion belief system is, there are people that are in front of us that are the leaders that the people that we go to when we have a problem, and it is." It is an honor and a privilege to hold that position. It was certainly the most, the highest calling I will ever experience in my life. Being the person that people trust to come to with their deepest problems, their, their worst secrets, it is such a privilege to be in that position. It taught me, dealing with people at that level, taught me so much about being able to, to talk to the criminal that I needed to interview because I knew already how to connect with people. And that's the thing that we often forget is that's really what it's all about. It's about caring. It's, it's about being a decent human being and caring about the other person. And in the ministry, I had ample amount of opportunity 
to work with somebody every day. Every day there was a crisis event. I kid you not, and you know this to be true too, doctor, is that there are people in crisis everywhere we look. It's one of the things that I was, I was mystified about actually on my, when I was out of the academy and at serving in my first field office in Washington, D.C., I realized that nobody had problems anymore. And I thought that was interesting is that people still had the problems. They just didn't come to me with them because I was no longer the guy. And when you're not seen as the person that is the one that they can go to, you don't hear about them anymore. But that's, that's the secret. The secret is to realize is that if you know somebody that doesn't have a problem, you don't know that person very well at all. Because if you're, if you're alive on planet Earth, you've got a problem and you've got a background and you've got a history then you've got things that you wish you had never done. You've had experiences that you, that you don't even want to talk about. And you've, had, you've made mistakes and you don't know how to, how to rectify who you are and, and your past. And that's what you do. You bridge the gap with those people and you listen. You listen deeply. You listen, you give them a chance to talk. And when people have a chance to express themselves, one of the sections of the crisis negotiation course for hostage negotiators has covered suicide because it's a very real thing that law enforcement encounters on a daily basis. And so, so too, do ministers. You run into people all the time that are thinking about taking their own life. And when you say to somebody, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? When you get all those indicators lined up in your head and you're thinking that's the road that they are starting to traverse, it is absolutely essential that you ask the question. Because people always, they think the, the, the conventional wisdom is, oh, if I say it, if I say it out loud to them, then I, maybe I'm planting that idea in their head and, and I've made a huge mistake and it might make them do it. It is actually the opposite is true. Because when they get an opportunity to hear it from somebody else, you'll see it like a steam release. You'll see it, the, the tension escape from their body. It'll be visible. If they're thinking about it, if it's on their mind, even if they're planning it, you'll see it happen. You'll see the body start to slump. You'll see the, the, the tenseness start to dissipate. And then you can start to, to ask these the very important questions and find out what's going on in their lives, in their world. So it is absolutely essential that we take the time. This is what I call the decent human being moment to talk to people. Regardless, it doesn't have to be about suicide. It could be whatever problem they're dealing with. But people are walking around with problems and with fears, and they're very real to them. You know, one person's fear and one person's problem is not going to be another person's, but you have to treat it as it's as just as serious and just as important as from a person that is anticipating a death of a pet. That is very real to them. That could be their whole life. Or you're talking to somebody who's just had to bury their child. You would look at it and say, we're talking about very different things in, in terms of the impact, but it actually is not. And you have to separate it out for the two people. So it's all about caring. It's all about making that connection. It's all about taking the time to listen to somebody. And they want to know how to get rid of that guilt. In the ministry, that's what you dealt with. You dealt with people who were, who were just trapped in guilt and fears, fears that they, that they couldn't get out from under. And I think really so much of what we encounter today is all about fear. It really is. It's about fear and guilt. These are two topics that I'm passionate about, and I really think that 
so much of the problems that we face, the disappointments in our lives, the reasons why we don't push forward and and become the people that we dream we could be is because of those two factors at, at play in, in our life. So that's, yeah, those, those are very important. It's interesting as you bring that up, Chip, and, and I'm going to try to connect some dots here. You tell me if this is too much of a stretch. But one of the things I noticed in our discussions and one of the things that you discuss even on your website in describing the kinds of services that you offer now in the business world, you talk about instilling hope. And it seems that, and maybe this was a lot of what you encountered in your ministry experience, is that so often people just, they have self-doubts, they have self-loathing. And if you carry that forward, there are times when I've seen advising sales teams, for example, and that there are sales professionals who are limited by self-doubt imposter syndrome that's there. But also if they are proposing or recommending something to a potential customer, and oftentimes the customer, even though it's not said, that prospective customer will push back, not because there's a flaw that they see in the product or the service offering, but because they think we would mess it up. We've been burned before. I've trusted the wrong people. You might have, you know, a bunch of testimonials, but we won't implement it well, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious when you talk about how to instill hope, that seems like a very tough thing to do. It's kind of like, how do you motivate someone? It would seem like hope would come from within, but I imagine that there are things that you can do in those relationships and in those conversations that allow hope to come through. Exactly, Jim. And that's, that is so very important. The idea of hope has to be forefront in everything, every encounter that we have with a, a person that is experiencing some type of loss or severe doubt or downturn in, in their lives or a missed opportunity, whatever form or shape it takes. We have to be able to look at it. And what we're really talking about is a fear. We're talking about a fear that I'm never going to be what I want to be, or I'm not going to be, the, the company's not going to grow, or I'm not going to make my, my figures this quarter. Whatever it is, I really feel it can be directly tied to fear. One of the things that happens to us when we're fearful is we make ourselves smaller. If we don't think we have the answers, or if we think we are the imposter, or if we think we're going to be caught flat-footed in a situation, we will actually both in a mental concept and in a physical way, we will try to make ourselves to be smaller people. And we won't allow ourselves to dream bigger, to think bigger about our solutions, who we are, the successes we've had in the past, other things that we can hang our hat on normally would when we are faced with a loss of hope or a fear. It robs us of that. And if there ever was a, an evil present, I would say, in an individual's ability to, to function out there, I would say it is about fear. Fear can decimate and tear down a person's confidence, a person's ability to instill hope in others, and it also will take away from our lives. It robs us of being the person that the world needs us to be. And so I, I would say that we have to, one of the things I would remind people 
both as a minister and as a negotiator and as a coach is what have you done in the past that shows that you could be successful here? Look at that success. Look at and it could be something small. It could, you know, we we often forget it, when we are in the valley, it is so difficult to remember what it was like when we were close to the mountaintop or when we were just above the valley, because it is the valley experience that is very nature takes away hope from us. So I try to remind people, you got to expand your vision. You've got to remember who you are. Remember what you've done. Remember the foundation that you built this company upon or your sales career or your employment here. Remember the successes. Think about those things and then go and be that person that was that successful person that was able to push through the current barrier that exists now and here in front of you because it's not real. It just isn't. And that's what the kind of fear and guilt take from us. It's that dissolution of hope. But but if you if you're able to come with a message that shows you you have hope, you have confidence, you're bigger than the problem, that you're you're there for them to help solve your you're way ahead of the game and you can get there. You absolutely can get there. Great guidance from Chip Massey on the Manager Message podcast. Chip, I, I want to test a bit of a hypothesis or a, a model with you. And I will tell you, it is okay to tell the podcast host whether <laughs> okay. you think he's off base or if he's missing something. And I know that you will use <laughs> kind language if you do. And I think through the work that you do, particularly now working with executives, working with sales teams, I hear this very, very often, especially with people who either individually or their companies are about professional services. They say, we want to be trusted advisors. We want to be trustworthy. And I think that's a great goal, but I think that a lot of people focus on the wrong things or they get a little bit off kilter. To me, my shorthand has been that trustworthiness, for the most part, is a function, an additive function of two things. On the one hand, it's your expertise. The other is your empathy. As we were talking about empathy before in the conversation. And so I would think from the other person's perspective, it's a combination of, hey, Chip knows what he's talking about and Chip gets me and, and Chip will work in my best interest, not just his. So kind of a two-part question here. First of all, where you see the role of empathy in terms of build, of being trustworthy, of building toward that status of being trusted from the other party, then there's the practical side of that. For example, I can readily identify that you have expertise by basis of your experience, your training, your background, the situations that you've been in. I know that you know what you're talking about. But for our listeners, it's it's hard to demonstrate empathy other than just saying, hey, we care. You know, we care about our communities. We care about our customers. I think it really takes conversation to be able to adequately demonstrate empathy, as you were saying, being able to put labels on emotions, to be able to communicate the nonverbals as well as the verbals. So I... I think you get my point, and I would, from your experience, both in business and, and before, the role of empathy in building trustworthiness and how you actually do that in a practical, everyday way. Exactly. I stated earlier on that empathy is everything, and I sincerely mean that because it's 
the, the people that you, you know we run into, Jim, is they already have their credentials, right? They're already the established executive or the, the sales leader or VP or wherever they are in the leadership structure. They're, it's clear, you know, they know their stuff. What is often missing is that ingredient of empathy. You know, there are, we all know in organizations, there are some people that they're going to send to their most important clients and some people that they're not. And the people that don't get the higher ticket items are going to be the people that just don't get it. And by don't get it, they don't have that emotional intelligence that the phrase that was used so, so many years ago, but I would distill it down to be empathy. Because if you can't connect to somebody in a personal one-to-one basis, if you can't identify with the struggles that they're dealing with, and if you can't articulate the struggles that you hear coming out of them and and not and we're not talking about sympathy here and i want to uh, create a clear distinction between sympathy and empathy because the the fbi uses empathy because it is not it, we don't use it because it's a, it's a it's a soft and fuzzy thing and we want people to feel good and warm about us it's not that we use empathy because it, it is deadly effective it is the most effective means for getting somebody from a level 10 of I'm going to kill the person right next to me to I need to talk to somebody about how to get out of this bad situation. If you use empathy in addition to your sales experience, to the business school that you went to, to the prestigious firm you now work for, if you add empathy and enhance your ability to bring out empathy in yourself, you're going to grow. You're going to be seen as the go-to person for those high-ticket clients. You're going to be seen as the one they bring in when they've got it's everything is is at stake and they need their their best person or their best team. They're going to identify you as that because it makes the executive, the sales leader, whoever it is, it makes them the well-rounded executive. It makes them the complete package. And it you know, people have said it is the superpower of getting that connection to people. And it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Because you and I, we know people that have the, all the expertise in the world, but that's all they got. You know, that's where their game ends. And a resume isn't going to be enough for the kinds of relationships, the uh, professional relationships that you want to have. I'm curious. So we began our conversation talking about those hopefully fairly rare, but high stakes kinds of negotiations, hostage negotiation or a kidnapping or something like that. And the way that a team prepared for that. So you, you gave us great detail. There's a whole team in the FBI that's going out from a certain office to a certain event that they're trying to diffuse and make right. And everybody has their role. Everyone's practiced it. Everyone knows where they fit into all this and they know how to move and how to adjust what they're doing if the environment changes, right? So taking this to work that our listeners could do in their own sales team, their own management team, and the kind of work that you do with business clients now, obviously it, it can't be a replication of the dynamics and the role-playing and practice and preparation that you had in your FBI life. But 
what are the elements that are important to get a, a team, a business team ready to do those things consistently that you were talking about? Demonstrating empathy, how to listen, body position, pacing, all of those sorts of things. What does it take at a minimal level from your standpoint of getting that to be a team competency? And how are the ways that you work with clients to be able to do that sort of thing? Great question. And I, I, there's immediate application that I would use and encourage every team that, that has an interest in growing in this direction. And I think every team does that, that certainly wants to, to get better at making that, those connections and, and becoming that trusted advisor. The process, the skill set that we learned at, at Quantico for hostage negotiation, we're told day one, it is a perishable skill. It is something that you can absolutely get worse at if you don't practice. So one of the things that I encourage people to do in their lives are, is to practice the techniques, not just in their business setting, but at home. I mean, the skill set here, just like the active listening concept, it's public knowledge. You can read any number of books on how the FBI does it, but it does you no good if you don't practice it. And you can absolutely go home tonight. And when you're speaking to your significant other, and instead of letting the stories just wash over you when you ask, hey, how was your day? And I'm guilty of it too. I will check out if I don't remind myself what I'm really asking and what, I'm, and what my purpose is right there. So you can practice the skill set by actively listening to what your significant other is saying to you and really listen, deep listen, and then check in with them. That's the other thing is to say, one of the things that is important to do is to create like a summary. If it's a, a story of any length, if a client is, is talking to you for any period of time, it's a good idea to, to break it down at, at some point, just like you did and are doing during this interview, is to do a little summation point. Hey, you know, this, I just heard you say that your coworker at your job, uh, you know, is having a, a struggle with their teenage son and they spent a lot of the day talking to you about that. And that must have been draining for you or that your boss uh, came out and, and attacked some of your work product and it made you feel very small. What, you know, can you tell me more about that? These are things that when we ask open-ended questions, that's another key thing to do when you are trying to extract and get to know a person better. You know, one of the things that I say is never ask closed-ended questions, you know, because it's presumably you already have some type of relationship with this person. So, you know, that they're already married or they, they have two children or they like uh, to go to the movie. So you can start there and say, you know, what's the best movie you recently went to? Or if I wanted a great slice of pizza in the city, where would I go? And what's it like? You're asking for a more robust answer. And that's, the, that's a, another key idea because all information is good information. People tend to forget that. That's our stock and trade in the Bureau is that if somebody's talking, that's a good thing. When they stop talking, that's when we get nervous. That's when things start to get tense. I tell you, Chip, that's great advice, both business and at home, as the father <laughs> now of three teenage sons. Sometimes communication is in grunts, and you're right. Even trying to use open-ended questions, try to give them enough space to talk, but know that <laughs> sometimes it might not happen. That's it. Oh, that, oh man, is that ever true, right? And, I, and we forget when we were in that time in our lives, we didn't want to have to do anything to do with our parents asking us questions and prying into our lives. Yeah, I, I'm glad that there weren't you know, easy video recordings at the time because I'm sure I was a sullen, <laughs> moody. Aren't we all? 
<laughs> you bet. One other topic, a little bit different and, and maybe not quite so deep, uh, a little bit more fun. One of the things that that I talk about, uh, write about, and we'll cover from time to time on the podcast is the concept of a mangled message. And so there are lots of times where it could be a, uh, it, it's really easy to do with a politician, but think through of a, a business leader or an organization. And we, we think of the ways that they can mess stuff up and as a way of, as a learning experience, not just to laugh at other people or other organizations, but there's that as well. So I, I think through, you were talking earlier about if there was a problem, if there's something that needs apologizing for to go ahead and make an apology. I think in terms of a mangled message here recently, at the time that we're recording this, the Ohio State head football coach, Urban Meyer, it was embroiled in controversy and had a press conference and made a statement in all the way from the very stale language to his inability to speak the name of a woman who was the victim of one of his assistant coaches' violent behavior, to body language, everything like that. It was the unapologetic apology. Everything, he was reading from a piece of paper. It was, it was that sort of thing. So every now and then, I like to point out, if you think it was a, a company that got it wrong, maybe they had the wrong person as their spokesperson. They used the wrong words. They're oblivious to the real world of their customer, or it's a self-absorbed message. I'll put it out there. Are there any leaders, any organizations on the one hand that you think do a really good job of messaging, a really good job of demonstrating empathy, of connecting to their, their customers? And any instances that come to mind lately of someone that you think messed it up in a way that the rest of us can learn from. Absolutely, Jim. I, I you know, one of the, there's an insurance company that I, I know and I've worked with. And one of the things that they teach their people is, and this is, could be for like auto insurance. When they get a call from a customer client that has been in an accident, their first words out of their mouth is, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Are you okay? And the follow-up is, was anybody else in your car with you? Are they okay? And then anyone else on the scene, is everybody else okay? And, and then, you know, so they're, they're displaying empathy immediately. And it's genius. It's one, it is the good thing to do, right? Is, is what I, again, refer to as the, being the, the, the good person. You want people in those situations, in those positions, when they're calling and they're in a crisis, you know, their life is getting turned upside down to some extent, you know, depending on the degree of severity of that accident. But hearing those words, even if you know somebody trained like me, when I hear those words, somebody trying to connect and feeling something about my situation and trying to understand what I might be going through, huge, huge. You want to talk about customer loyalty? Lead somebody through a crisis event. Lead somebody that is in a valley out of it. You will become a client for life. You have them all the years that they're alive on this earth. I guarantee it. You know, you are that person that they go to that, and they're going to be loyal to you till the day they die. Now, the converse of that is, remember when BP had that incident in the Gulf of, of that huge leak in their pipeline and their oil rig? And the unfortunate words that came out of the, the CEO's mouth is, I just want to get my life back. You know, it was, you know, sent shockwaves through the company, obviously. And 
and then through everybody that was affected by that horrific event in both the deaths that occurred and the aftermath of the cleanup and the the damage done to the environment and jobs lost. So that is definitely an example of a mangled message. And what a great contrast from the insurance company that is using the personal language that's asking in a very other focused way, are you okay? Are other people okay? We can take care of the, the vehicle, right? But let's get first things first versus the the executive at BP who basically has been inconvenienced by an accident that was not intentional but certainly affected exactly. terribly exactly so many uh, so many people so message managers this is why i invited chip massey onto uh, the podcast this has been terrific in in guidance about how to deescalate a hot situation with with a lot of high risk how to build rapport, how to demonstrate empathy, how to deepen relationships and give people hope and confidence at home and on the job. It's been a delight to have you on here, Chip. How can people learn more about you, continue to learn from you, and how do you work with clients? Thank you, Jim. And it was it, truly, it was my honor. I love talking about this subject matter. It is my lifeblood. It, it really is because it ties so much of what I believe and it really helps people. And that's what I get I get a joy out of. You can find me at chipmassey.com. That's my the name of my website. You know, you can find out more about my business there, but please feel free. That's also my uh, email is chip at chipmassey.com. You can reach me. If you have any questions, I would love to be of a help. If it's maybe it's something, you know, a problem you're going through, a personal problem or, or whatever, I'm, I love to help people. I really do. So Jim, it's been my honor. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, doctor, for having me on this program today. Thank you, Chip Massey. Until the next edition of the Manager Message Podcast, know that we will put links, we will put the information into the show notes. We invite you to rate and review this podcast and subscribe, and more importantly, to share it if you find value and you think others will as well. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message Podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message Podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at ManageYourMessagePodcast.com and JimCar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often. <laughs>